this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at patreon.com forward slash dig me out. And Jay, thanks to our steering committee and board of directors at Patreon, we were able to lock down a topic for this episode it took us a while to actually get the gang together and and record this one so it's it's about a week late as far as posting we didn't make our march deadline but we will make this happen we are making this happen it's happening right now as i'm speaking and this is a bit of a sleeper i think way to take this i don't think we would have thought of this ourselves so no this was Uh, brought up by the patrons yeah so thank you Good idea. It was New Order versus Bruce Springsteen in the 90s. Mm-hmm. That was the mm-hmm. the battle that took place on our poll. New Order, uh, I think it was 4 to 1 was the percentage, or the, not percentage, but the, the vote difference. So it was by uh, a, a bit of a landslide that uh, we're doing New Order in the 90s. And this is going to be interesting because there isn't a whole lot of New Order in the 90s. <laughs> So this is going to be like 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, not really. When I saw that we were doing this, I was like, oh, okay, I have to dig more into the catalog. And I'm going through, I'm like, what, where are all the records at? And you got to explain to me. <laughs> yeah, I'd explain. I'm you, a noob. No, you, you're going to have 12 other albums to that aren't New Order to listen to. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, one which we've already done, which we'll get into later. But to help us run the decade of... New Order and their various side projects. We have a couple of returning guests. Uh, I believe the last time Mr. Matt Shivendecker joined us was Electronica in the 90s. Is that correct? That is correct. That was Glad a, to be back. That was a, a fun episode. We, we expanded our horizons on that episode. We're more on the rock end of things. So that was fun to get into that uh, end of the 90s with uh you in our round table and of course been here many times before fresh off her uh rock and roll hall of fame tweet storming <laughs> Annie Zaleski. welcome back thank you uh so we're going to talk about new order in the 90s and this is as we mentioned in the lead up a band that didn't put out a lot of material in the 90s actually put out one album of original material and then they put out a greatest hits and then a second remix hits release uh, because they kind of broke up for a lot of the 90s but they did put out a lot of side project material so we're going to get into that we're going to start with 1989 though this is not dig me out 80s this is dig me out 90s but we're going to start with 1989 because that's the last album that the band makes on uh factory records so it's a big deal it's also their first album to reach number one on the UK albums chart, which I found that kind of strange. I figured that they might have had an album before that. Uh, and I'm co- talking about Technique, which was released in January of 1989. It had two top 20 singles in the UK and the US, which were Fine Time and Round and Round. So, Jay, I'm going to start with you. 
what's your familiarity with New Order in terms of the 80s stuff versus 90s stuff? I know you know some of the 2000s stuff, but had you listened to much of the 90s stuff or 80s stuff? No, it wasn't really until the, the 2000s, I think. Siren's Call, I, I liked that record a lot. And the one before that, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it came out in maybe 2000. Get ready. Uh, yeah. That that kind of introduced me. Like, I mean, obviously I, I was aware of the band, but I hadn't spent a ton of time listening other than hearing some of the singles here and there. But that's when I really started to get into the band and understand them, uh, you know, from that point forward. Okay. Really where I started. So, Shiv, let me ask you about technique. I went back and revisited this record, and I was shocked because I didn't really know the singles from this album. I'm more oh. familiar with like Age of Consent and Bizarre Love Triangle and and some of those. Sure. But this is a, a a high charting album. It's I mean it's a number one. Where do you place this in terms of overall album in terms of their, their output in the '80s? Is this would you consider this one of their top records, or is this a matter of they had built up such a run of records that it was that they uh, squeaked this one out at the end with a number one? Well, sure. I mean, I do think that that's part of it. It's just that at that point, you know, they were they were very well known and they had had a lot of a lot of big hits, and so I think that that you know the success of the record can be attributed a lot to to those factors. But I mean, I. Even though I don't, I don't love that album um, entirely. I mean, I think "Fine Time" is one of is one of the best singles. And and I, I actually was just kind of preparing for this podcast. I was pulling, uh, you know, vinyl off my shelves, and I do have um, a "Fine Time" uh, twelve inch, which is just, uh, I mean, it's got some incredible remixes on it. And so that yeah, and that and that really that record came out right around the time I actually you know I started listening to WOXY, um, you know where I ended up working for many many years. But I was uh, probably uh, the end of my junior high years uh, there in 1989, uh, heading into high school when I first started listening to the station. And so I was definitely exposed to the singles from this record um, from from listening to the radio. Okay, now Annie. When do you enter the picture with New Order? I think you're a, a, a few years younger than the rest <laughs> of us uh, because we all went to college together. Was it uh, towards the end of the 90s or to end of the 80s with New Order or did you catch up with them in the 90s? So the big one I actually remember was Regret, I think. So I was definitely probably early 90s. Okay. Like that, I loved that song. That was one of like, I had started listening to in Cleveland, um, there was a modern rock station called The End and they played that a ton. And so I love that song. So I kind of jumped on there. I got a greatest hits record. And then, you know, over the years, I've kind of, you know, stuck with them, but also gone backwards and gotten all the 80s records and Joy Division. And, you know, I had a Joy Division best of in high school, like everyone does. So, <laughs> you know, I've kind of jumped around a little bit. And I love electronic, too. So I definitely had electronic record as well, because I was a big Smiths fan. Right. So there's two things that happen now, even though they put out a huge record. Almost immediately, you have Peter Hook releasing One True Passion with the band Revenge. That comes out in 1990. And then the following year, 1991, Bernard Sumner releases the first electronic album with Johnny Marr. So off on the heels of their most successful record, they don't make another New Order record. Does anybody know the story? Did they just want to take a break from New Order? Like it seems like these things came out really fast after this 
um, New Order record that was released. Obviously, there's another New Order album t- to come, so they weren't on no speaking terms yet. <laughs> now, they weren't suing each other yet. So uh, does anybody know the history as far as why those two projects happened so quickly? Well, and I I realize actually um, we should probably back up a little bit because they also had in 1990 World in Motion, the single, and I re- and I feel like that was actually massive in the UK too. That was a World Cup single, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was like that was even a huge hit here too, and that was a non-album track that was on like that hit well huge on the modern rock tracks and it was a top 10 dance club and yeah it was a uk number one too And so I feel like potentially, I don't quite know the story, but I feel like after that came out is when everything sort of slid downhill for a couple of years. Okay. Interesting. I forgot about that uh, that single. Yeah, World Cup singles. Big deal over there. Right, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that song, it was like the theme for it that was. year's World Cup. So, you know, it, it just you have an automatic anthem. Okay. It's funny though. Cause it's like still an anthem. Cause I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I went to Hyde park to see the cure last year and I'm pretty sure ride came out like two world. And Mo- I'm pretty sure or at some point during that day, cause the world cup was going on. I heard world in motion. So oh, wow. it's like still this like anthem in the UK. Wow. So let's see the first breakup. Yeah. That's, that's the thing I, I'm, I, I tried to find out some information about like, was there, some sort of schism between Hook and, and Sumner, but it doesn't really indicate that. It just kind of jumps to, well, they put out the single and then they both had side projects. And in listening to those side projects, um, you can clearly hear there's a difference in the direction that each of them wanted to go. We can start with the electronic album, because that's and actually a band that we've touched on as a podcast we did twisted tenderness the third record uh many seasons back and discuss that it was i think jay and i both were impressed but not overwhelmed by that record there was some issues we had with it but um i thought in listening to those two albums the first electronic record and the revenge record i could hear the influence on the 93 new order album republic did you guys pick up a change in the sound in comparison from technique to republic that seemed connected to either of those two 
That's an interesting question. I mean, it, it's. I, I think that there is definitely a shift between that. You know, I mean, I, technique still very much, uh, even though it's it's right there on the edge. Like it still very much sounds like an '80s record. Right. Um, and then I think that by the like, I don't know what it is. I think, uh, you know, Annie mentioned regret, and that is a song that still really, really holds up to me. And in the strangest way, I mean, maybe you'll disagree, but in the strangest way, it feels very timeless to me. It doesn't specifically sound, uh, I, I, I don't recall the nineties immediately when I hear that song aside from like just my obvious nostalgia factor, because I was like in high school, um, and, and also was just like a huge fan of that song, but I just that that song in particular just like really really holds up to me. Yeah, I no, agree. I I yep. totally agree. And I when I went back and re-listened to Technique, it felt so 1989 to me. Like it just felt so dated, and I was not expecting that because it's been a while. Listen to it. Like, ooh, wow. You know, it, yeah. it's n- not very. And I think a lot of new orders, like like Low Life, has also aged extremely well. And I think Low Life has that kind of timeless quality, but Technique feels definitely of its time. Yeah, I agree. And I wasn't super familiar with. Um, well, again, I, I actually have not ever heard the other two side project, and Revenge was something that I think that honestly, Pineapple Face is the only track I was ever really familiar with. I know that got some radio airplay on Waxy um, when I was listening there in those early years, um, but I like it's certainly nothing I ever ran out and bought. Um, or maybe was not even explicitly aware that it was a side project. I'm trying an icy form of love. Even though I fight it, I can't hide. With all the feelings in my head and all the timings I have tried. Will anybody give me what I need? Put all my faith in God above. This time I'm falling just for you. I guess I'm hungry for that love. But electronic, I definitely was and was a huge fan of that first record. Like in hindsight, I hear it feels like a, like a, the electronic record, especially the singles, are very much sort of a bridge to regret. You know, like Johnny yeah. Mars like still plays live. He he still plays Getting Away With It. And he actually added Get The Message into his set list last year for the first time. And I, I interviewed him actually a couple of weeks ago and I mentioned how excited I was that was back in there. And he was just like, waxing ecstatic about how much he loves that song but it's it wow. sounds in 2018 when i saw them it totally fit in with the rest of the set it was very very it was very timeless sounding yeah i think that all four singles from the electronic record oh, yeah are just 
like honestly they're pretty damn perfect i never spent a ton of time with the entire record to be honest but like those singles are incredible yeah i agree yeah jay i don't know if you remember the electronic record that we did that well yeah i remember the review yeah and i, and I know um i mean i know getting away with it i mean that's just when i revisited that album for this song like that's just a song i just remember uh very clearly uh it's a great hook so some of this stuff was familiar and i do remember yeah we reviewed the uh third record what two seasons ago three seasons ago yeah it just in hearing that song again like you said it was familiar i'd heard it somewhere i don't remember i don't you know 1980 i think 89 90 whenever that single was released um i don't remember what i was listening to station wise but there is because there is a bit more of an organic feel to that record because of mar playing guitar there is something that carried over that makes regret and and the republic album sound a little less mechanical which is what i was picking up when annie said like the the dated sound of 89 like that record sounds mechanical because it sounds like it's using whatever uh, synthesizers and drum machines are very 80 sounding and they're very mechan like it, they can sound very mechanical. Whereas there's a, a real like playing to the sound or, or uh, it sounds like a band more so on Republic on a lot of that record that, I wonder if is carried over from the electronic sort of vibe. It's also like a little bit more laid back, which I feel like that was carried forward forever with New Order. Like the four on the floor stomp that I associate with like a lot of the dance stuff is not as there, not as prevalent from after technique as it is before technique it's the same thing with a little bit with the revenge album which i was not familiar with at all but it's it sounds much more like a band and i don't know if those guys were just tired of whatever they were doing in the studio and they felt the need to like play with some more organic sounds but they both seem to like carry over to uh to what was going to be happening in 93 with republic and then also you mentioned shift the uh the other two and you that comes out in 93 is that around the same time? When does Republic come out? That's um in, in the in the spring of '93, yeah. And then in the in November is when the other two and you uh, comes out, which is odd. That I guess I don't know. Maybe it's not that they, <laughs> they have an album of the other two members coming out the same year. Is seems like a lot of material that now in retrospect I'm like. Well, maybe um, Tasty Fish would have been a cool single for Republic if they had reworked that. And it also made me think, why wasn't um, why weren't they using Jillian as a vocalist? Because, you know what I mean? Like, there was yeah, an I mean, opportunity I, there. I, I was not familiar with the other two. And when I listened to that, I was like, this is a really strong record. Like, it's just, you know, her, whatever they were doing on that, like, it was, I was like, wow, this should have gotten a lot more attention. And I'm wondering if because, you know, they had Quest and Warner Brothers, you know, promoting, you know, Republic, it was what, or, or, yeah, Republic, it was kind of like, yeah, you guys can put this out, but we're not going to, like, give any sort of attention to it.
because I vaguely remember it coming out, but I don't remember anything for it. I'm like, this is actually really decent. This should not have been buried. Yeah. Can, can we talk for a minute about how how interesting it is that in the United States that their records were released because of Quincy Jones? That's right. Like that, I, I've always thought that that's fascinating. So what's the story there? I, I don't entirely know, but Quest was his imprint of Warner. Okay. And, you know, all of the... I mean, I think that all of their U.S. releases um, up up through a certain point, you know, everything was, you know, basically through Quest. Huh. I had not realized that. Yeah, he, it was... Uh... Yeah, <laughs> I know. I mean, it's it's actually pretty fascinating because I mean, just go. I mean, obviously they were, you know, with those early singles, like they were, they had these huge club hits and everything. But uh, that's, I mean, to be to be perfectly honest, I don't really know how many other artists were ever signed to that label. I mean, I don't think that he put out a ton of releases through it. And New Order was always was always there. And Joy Division. It says according well, to Wikipedia, it says that Joy Division was distributed through Quest. I mean, I, there were definitely reissues and stuff. Like, I don't. I, maybe he was there from the beginning on that. I don't. I guess I don't know. That that makes me wonder if he he's listening to uh, Unknown Pleasures and he's like, yeah, this this is gonna fit well with our George Benson record. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an odd pairing, and I and I'm guessing that the promotion for New Order stuff generally went through Warner Brothers staff anyway. But like, I do sort of love that idea <laughs> of people working in an office uh, for Quincy Jones who has so, to promote New Order. On, on Wikipedia, now they're they're quoting that Quincy Jones apparently told Enemy in May 1990, "I'm so honored that New Order picked my label to go on in the U.S. It really flattered me. They're beautiful people." Okay. Uh, so I, but I, but they picked his label. So you know, how did they even get to that point? I don't know. I should have read like Peter Hooks. I read his, I read his second second book or third book, and and I. I, I might have glossed over this part. I should have like found it, but his, his book's like 600 pages. It's incredible. <laughs> but like, it's just, yes, I think that's his, yeah, that's right. His new order book. And he was, I think he told me it was like twice that the first draft or something. So I wow. think somewhere in there buried, I'm sure it's there. And someone will probably have read this and know the answer. I'm guessing. I can't wait to find out. Yeah. All right. So of the initial side project releases, you've got, the other two and you, the first electronic album, and Revenge. What's your what's your pick out of those? Is electronic the clear winner of I the side I, projects? I, I, yeah. I think that's the clear winner. Yeah, <laughs> and especially because let's let's not forget. Uh, well, I, I've, I've always thought it was very interesting, actually, it being Bernard with Johnny Marr because musically. It certainly has more in line with New Order music than with the Smiths. But then you also had, at least uh, in the writing department on some of those songs, uh, the Pet Shop Boys for the first record. Right. Neil Tennant's on that, right? Yeah. Um, And those, you know, I think that that, 
especially um, for getting away with it, I think is a big part of um, the, the just the incredible melody of that song. You know, now that you mention it, now that I'm hearing that in my head, I'm like, that is kind of a Pet Shop Boys melody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's he definitely is, is like the secret sauce of that track, in my opinion. No, I agree totally. Interesting. So then the band did put out one official record in the 90s, which is Republic. And some some folks over at our Patreon page, they had some thoughts about this. Uh, Darren Leach said Republic had four great singles off it and the rest were filler. In my opinion, for me, this album was a massive disappointment after the amazing technique, which is my favorite. Get ready is a step up in 2001. Um, and then let's see what else was there. Jim Lazowski says, I cannot say enough good things about their song regret, which is easily one of my favorite songs of the entire decade. Republic was pretty decent, was a pretty decent record if memory serves, but didn't compare to their earlier work. Regret was one of the first covers I ever learned and instantly made me a fan of the band. Um, uh, Mike Bond regret was something of a classic. Although the album felt a touch forgettable. I still remember buying my copy of electronics, get the message on seven inch, which is still probably my collection after hearing it on the Mark Goodyear BBC Radio One show. Get the Message was another great single, and I remember buying the debut electronic album on tape at my local War Wars. <laughs> he said, while the uh, Pet Shop Boys connection was a touch dubious in my taste, the collabora- collaboration resulted in something truly special. <laughs> he followed up with, World in Motion, though, was something truly awful. <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, not a fan of that song. No, not a fan of that song. And then, but Ian Wobble, he went on the other, he said, sad time for one of the greatest bands of all time. Republic introduces the new order by the number sound, no longer pushing boundaries. Peter Hook has always said that Bernard came in and changed the whole sound of the album after his time with Electronic, which may explain the similarities between a, a Republic and the first Electronic album. I would have, I would love to hear the original mix interesting maybe that's in the book about uh bernard uh messing with the mix the album he said the album has some stolen cold new order classics but i find it way overproduced but maybe it was just a 90s thing for them regret is one of the finest pop songs ever written period and that's the thing i think in terms of their catalog i mean regret is up there with probably the finest singles that they have it's just that the album overall seems pretty divisive in terms of its quality some are saying there's four good tracks off of it some are saying that the rest of the album is is junk i i found it to be listenable i didn't find it to be an unlistenable record it's not as there's nothing else that stands up to regret as far as a hook did anybody else feel well, that the, way yeah i mean the main thing about this record is is that it's super front loaded i mean literally i mean if you're i mean i bought the the vinyl when they reissued it a few years back and you know all the singles are in a row on side a and then there's a there's a fifth song and then you know side b i can't say that i'm flipping over and listening to <laughs> as much but those first you know that the first side and all of those singles i think are pretty great i mean it is interesting to note that the the single world off of the Republic album is not to be confused with World in Motion, the World Cup single that is a totally separate song. On this album, it was World uh, parentheses 
the price of love um and i and i would dare say nearly as catchy of a track as regret i i really always liked that But it's kind of funny to me, you know, if it tells you where my head was at. I mean, I very specifically remember going to what was then Jim City Records in Dayton, Ohio. And I guess I would have been a junior, a junior or senior in high school when Regret came out. And uh, I, on the same afternoon, I bought the 12-inch for Regret and the 12-inch for Janet Jackson, that's the way love goes. Nice. Solid picks. I was going to say, that's a good trip. <laughs> it was a great trip. And I mean, and it really, you know, it's funny, I looked up because I was thinking, you know, about how big of a, of a song Regret was. And it, it, according to the Billboard charts, I mean, it went to number seven on the mainstream top 40. Number seven. That's pretty shocking. Yeah. And they followed of course, it up. I mean, it was it was it was number 1 at alternative radio first. Right. And then crossed over. And then they followed this up by breaking up. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, know, as all bands, you know, do when they're scoring hit singles and whatnot. Uh yeah, they they broke up. That's when the other two album the other two's debut album was released later in that year. Um, and then they followed it up with what you do when you break up. You put out your best of. Um, the best of New Order oh. came out in '94. I I don't know. I have thoughts about that. I really hate this record. Really? The, the remix. I do. I got this remix record. I think the remixes on this that the remixes on there put me so off on the band. It took me probably until Get Ready to like get back in to like liking the band I, that's no i take right. that back they did have arthur they, baker yes. do different versions okay well some of them were previously unreleased it was like bizarre love triangle 94 and true faith 94 and like that's the stuff that just like it just did not work for me for whatever reason i was like i don't know like 16 or something i had a really visceral negative reaction to that was it like full house negative or <laughs> Ah, it was pretty negative. I think, I mean, I, I basically just didn't listen to the CD. I probably grumbled to myself. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I wrote about it on my GeoCities page, but I did have a GeoCities page. <laughs> but yeah, there was something about it, like, you know, for whatever reason, that it just did, like, it. the, the remixes just were, just did not sit right with me. Probably because I had heard the originals and I really liked them. And so I was kind of like, what is this? It just, right. Ugh. That's... See, I don't think that I even bought that best of because I 
already had substance um, and didn't care, but was the parallel release, The Rest of New Order, which was all the best remixes off the 12-inch singles, and those were... It was amazing to have all of those collected onto vinyl or onto CD. I see. I should have spent my money on that rather than the other one. But I think it yeah. was like, I think it might have even been a Columbia House pickup or BMG music oh, club. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In retrospect, I was it, it is weird that they would mess with, they're putting out a best of, but then they're changing the songs. I understand when like bands do that and they'll have like one that's like the live version of the song instead of like the, the the studio version or what have you, or they'll throw a new track on there that is supposed to be a hit. And, um, but to redo a bunch of the tracks and yeah, that's not, and not have I the original say, versions is weird. I would say though, it was not that unusual in that moment of time. I mean, you had things like, you know, Madonna's immaculate collection, all, several of the biggest hits on that appear in on in remix versions that were not on any other that had never been released before. Hmm. And to me, those are the definitive versions now. But yeah, no, very true. It's actually very kiss-like. Oh, sorry, but also just remember, you know, they had already done the Blue Monday '88. Where yeah. you know they, had, you know they. Had, I mean, it's just sort. Of, they they were actually really good at milking things, and I mean, I don't think that those versions had much play in the United States. But that's definitely the kind of thing that they would do and get on the radio all over again overseas. Gotcha. I guess I'm not thinking about enough of the uh, the other markets that are probably. Oh yeah, I mean. The U.S. was not their biggest market, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm looking. True Faith 94 hit number nine in the U.K. And Blue Monday 95 hit 17. Yeah. But I mean, Blue Monday, I mean, that hit, that was the third time it had hit the charts in, in the U.K. It also charted in 83 and 88. And, of course, would then inspire Orgy to uh, cover it and yeah. turn it into another... Oh. Single. <laughs> let's, not, let's not even bring that up. Tim. It was in the nineties, unfortunately. Yes, it was. And you know what I can say just from looking around here is that, you know, essentially the the best of New Order was kind of just done to cash in for the holiday season in the UK mm. at the end of that year. Yeah. It didn't come out in the US till the following spring, but it was out it was out overseas in the fall of 94 so they were basically just like oh here christmas gifts yeah there you go 1799 pick this up <laughs> it's all songs that they already had yeah i'm looking but there are a lot of compilations it. yeah i mean they were i mean that's how i first got to know them i mean you know i might obviously you know knew the big hits from listening to the radio but you know i mean i my, I started out just by buying substance. That was all I thought I needed as a teenager. You know, it took a long time for me to go back to the full albums. So then in addition to this, we also get in July of this year, the raise the pressure album, the second album from electronic, which I did not recognize anything off of that record when I heard it Unlike with the first album. Were either of you familiar with that? record i was not raise the pressure yeah 
again, you know, my knowledge in that time comes strictly from Waxy. And so I know that I know two of the singles from that record. I mean, Forbidden City and uh, I actually don't even recall the second one, but those definitely got played um, at the station and were in the library. So I knew those tracks, but I never I definitely never owned that album. This album felt um, a little Brit poppy to me, like it's a little jangly at times. And I don't know, it had like uh, more of an organic kind of poppy feel to it. Not as synthetic as synthetic as the first electronic record. Yeah, I could hear that too. It's interesting that it sounds more organic, and yet they brought in the guy from Kraftwerk uh, on this record, yeah. Carl Bartos, which you would think they would go more electronic, but they yeah. didn't. Just a um, lot of jangly <laughs> guitars on it. Which I guess that makes sense because, I, I mean, Johnny Marr's guitar playing can get pretty jangly. Yeah, yeah, which is I think what we uh, when we uh, reviewed the third record, that was one of the things I think we were both a little surprised by is that the lack of jangly guitar on that. It's more electronic than the what we expected, at least I expected. Right. This is I think the second record is kind of what I expected when we went into the third one of kind of what they would sound like having not really heard the band. Yeah. Annie, were you familiar with, at all with that record? I wasn't like I I was probably vaguely aware that it came out just from reading music magazines, but like I didn't remember a thing on it. Weirdly enough, I own it even I believe, and I don't know if I've actually even ever like listened to it. I think I picked up a copy along the way because oh it was cheap, but like <laughs> yeah I've I've ne- I had never felt really compelled to listen to it. I can't tell you why. I have no idea why. Around this time, so Revenge is a one and done for well not one and done. I mean it's. It gets re-released as their their one album gets re-released in 2004 with some bonus material. Peter Hook then goes and he tours with uh, Derudy Column. Is that how you say the name? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, starts working on Monica, which comes out a couple years later. That's music for pleasure. I think is it the same singer? Uh, is it David Potts who's the singer in both bands? Mm-hmm. So I liked the Monaco stuff way better than the Revenge stuff. And actually, that single... Oh, What Do You Want From Me is just a classic track. Yeah, Like, I totally. knew that, and I didn't know I knew it. We must have played it at FAL. I'm, I'm uh, it that. Prob- yeah, it probably was in there, because it definitely was a song that I... Uh, that I loved from Waxy. So if, <laughs> if we had it in the studio, I'm sure I had it marked up. <laughs> so... And it's got that signature Peter Hook based. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's what I want. (laughs) I want a whole record of that. Well, because he's such a unique bass player that when you hear it, you immediately go, yes, this is what I, this is awesome. Taking my life away, ruining everything. What do you want from 
Um, so Ian Wobble, in addition to his Republic comments, also said his Monaco project produced one of the greatest single singles New Order never released with What Do You Want From Me? But the album is very forgettable, very unforgettable. Or is he meaning to say forgettable? He said, I never bother with the second album. The side projects show the band really struggling with identity and most failed without big help, a.k.a. Mar and Tenet or on, on the electric album. Electronic album. A lot of tension and, and fighting did not help the band in the early 90s, helped along with the closure of Factory Records, but it does go to show how well a band can work together, and it proves with the release of Get Ready in 2001. Johnny Hooper said, my, New Order was my gateway into so-called alternative music, although my music tastes have changed quite dramatically since. I'm indebted to their music for showing me the way forward. Though you could be forgiven for thinking that their music might have been only for its time, it's proven to be timeless in its capacity to influence and captivate, much like their previous incarnation, I might add. Yeah, it got me wondering, like, well, what if what if this, what if the What Do You Want From Me had been a, a New Order single? Like, what would, well, one, would Bernard Sumner have pulled that off the same way? But that bass line is like, would have been perfect for a New Order song. I think that's why it had the success that it did. I mean, keep in mind, uh, when the Monaco record came out, that was still before alternative radio was completely ruined. And it, right. did, I mean, it, what do you want from me got a lot of play. Totally. Um, on on alt stations and i mean i i think it was i mean it's it's kind of totally forgotten now but i i think that it was a really uh big radio hit at the time yeah i mean i i was still in high school then and i think it got airplay here i love that song i think that song was just that was like it was an interesting kind of bridge too i think from brit pop or from brit pop to kind of where british guitar music was going to because I remember it getting airplay. There was a really good Britpop show in Boston that I used to listen to. And like they got an airplay there, too, I believe. And it just like really fit in well with everything going on in the late 90s, too, in Britain. So it was really – and, you know, it was Peter Hooks. So it was a pretty good mix of even his early stuff and where he was also going with New Order. What did you guys think of the album overall, if you had a chance to revisit? Was it just driven by the one song, or did you feel like it was deep, that it, there were actually other – tracks worth revisiting i don't know that i think that record is especially deep but i do think that 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 song like you know definitely stands the test of time for me yeah yeah i'd agree with that so we mentioned that eventually they do get back together and that's 98 they reform to play the reading festival and that sort of brings the back brings the band back together on i guess speaking terms for the time being and they had been together for about five years. So they still had stuff to work out, you know, individually. So there's another electronic album that comes out. That's the one we reviewed, Twisted Tenderness. Um, and what Jay mentioned, that album seems to me like sort of out of step with 99. I know that they did it with a couple of the guys from Doves. And in knowing that, it, it seems like it should have been, I don't know, uh, the single livid is really good but it's not indicative of the overall record in a lot of ways and um i know jay and i struggle with the lack of johnny marr 
on their record. Unfortunately, it's not streaming, so it's not it's not streaming in the U.S. I'm sure it's probably streaming in other countries based on the ridiculous rules on what gets to stream where. <laughs> yeah, I it, it's it seems like in terms of the uh, progression of that band that it makes more sense to be like the second record rather than the third. But I don't remember at all when it came out. Probably because it wasn't. I'm I'm guessing because it was on what was it. Uh, what was the name of that label that it came out it, on? It came out on Koch through the in, through the United States, and it was oh. it was a long time after the British release. I mean, I we played it as an import at Waxy. That was right around the time that I had. Um, uh, I mean, I, that was my first full year of working at the station in '99. Yeah. And we played it on import because um, I mean that was even. I mean that was before doves were doves i mean jimmy that jimmy had been in another band which uh a sub sub so like that's that's how i think how they got to um to that project was sub sub were kind of making house music actually Mm -hmm. um and that uh, was very very different than what doves turned out to be um and yeah i mean arthur baker worked on that record and it definitely had some good tracks. I mean, I I remember really liking um, "Make It Happen" a lot. Did you like the Steve Winwood cover or the the traffic That's, cover? That yeah, I don't, that <laughs> that seems like a bad. This was a bad idea. I want to know who pitched that. Who pitched? Let's do some traffic. I can't imagine that Bernard Sumner is a big traffic fan. Maybe he is. Um. <laughs> no, you know what? I I would actually not be surprised if it's Johnny, um, because like so he and uh, Matt Johnson from the the just did um, Summer in the City, like the the old '60s song, which I would never the love and like, spoonful. Suspected. Yes, they they like so they did it live. Um, you know, not to get too far afield, but basically, you know, the the toured the U.S. last year when Johnny was also touring, and they never got together. But Johnny did end up on stage with him, I think, in one of the UK shows. And I was like, they did that song? Really? I would never have suspected that. I feel like so people would, get together yeah. and do those kinds of songs because they're like really simple songs. And they know the chord progression. They're like, it's just G, C, and D. It's just like 50 other songs. So we can pull it off and everybody knows the melody and the audience can kind of sing along. Like, let's do Louie Louie. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's probably... I, I'm probably wrong, but uh, I feel like there's like guitar players. You can just throw like three chords at them, and they'll be able to strum those those chords, even if they just step on stage without knowing the song. It's I don't know that traffic cover just throws me for that record. Jay, do you remember that for this record? I don't know, um, <laughs> and you can't even. I mean, it's not even available. How do we even find? How do we even review this? Because I don't have the MP3s, and well, it's not on, on there's streaming. ways to get MP3s. Oh, uh, was this one of the ones we had to listen to on YouTube? Maybe. I think it was. I think it was, yeah. It might have been. Also, the, yeah. you, if you type in a band name and a title and then like ZIP or RAR afterwards. What? Have... What? Stop it. <laughs> Just saying, that's one of the tricks of the trade. When you're No one does that. When, when you're doing it the wrong way. The right way is to buy the record from the artist if they release it this actually got released a full year later from the it was released april 99 in the uk and then it came out in 2000 
uh, in its original version that was released again in 2001, Twisted Tenderness Deluxe, with a whole second disc of um, extra songs and remixes. Well, I think that's essentially what we got in the U.S. Like, because it was so delayed for the United States, Koch released it as a two-CD version and it had a lot of that extra stuff on it i think that was just this i think that was just the regular edition for the united states as i recall i might be wrong on that and then also in 99 we get the second the other two album which is super highways um a couple of singles were released i don't recall any of this and you know you can fly in super highways the song where the title track where the singles um i did not check those out i'm gonna be honest i have to say i am really uh cause i just don't remember anything about this project and i am flabbergasted that they did have u.s releases or at least the first one did um through quest i've i've never seen the cover art you know, like that's just completely off my radar, and I feel like I pay more attention than most to these things. <laughs> I was gonna say, if so it's not it's on your kind radar. Of intriguing. I I feel exactly the same way. I'm kind of like, how did I not hear really about this? Like it didn't ring a bell, and I mean, I was pretty much immersed in music twenty four seven. And you were at the radio station then. Yeah, I have no idea. To be fair, Jay and I have looked at like release dates in the 90s and when you get into the latter half of the 90s there are so many albums coming out every week by bands that you know like yeah 20 30 albums a week and you're like oh i know that band i know that band yeah i got that album oh yeah that you it probably slipped on i don't think that there's a u.s release for this album i don't think so either like looking looking this up yeah maybe a credit record yeah, I think the second record did not, which makes which makes sense why I guess I it, it was not on my radar. So the band gets back together, and they make a new album. Two thousand one, Get Ready is released. Jay, this is this is where you get into the picture, right? This is where you're like, I'm on board finally <laughs> with with New Order. I'm like, hey, I get this. Hey, what's this band? I'm gonna check them out. <laughs> Heard good things. Uh... A little bit. I mean, honestly, it wasn't until uh, waiting for the sirens call that I really like. You you really finally warmed up. Yeah. It took it took twenty years, but I'm so uh, when you up. get to the did this band survive the '90s? For me, uh, you already know what my answer is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. In listening to this record, and I didn't really hear any traces of what I heard on Technique, other than. Bernard Sumner's voice. A lot of this record feels influenced by what they did individually in the 2000s and then just going into a very different direction altogether. And maybe that's, you know, intentional that they were trying to push away from that, but it does not feel like there's much of a connection for me to what they sounded like in their 80s era. So what. What did you guys think of this record? Let me ask you this. Did you get it when it came out? And has did you enjoy it when it came out? Do you remember it all? And revisiting it, does it still hold up for you? Or does it not hold up? Or how does it sound? Shiv, I'll start with you. 
Uh, I loved this record when it came out. I mean, at this point, when this album came out, I was a music director at WOXY. And I really specifically remember, you know, it's kind of funny. We had such a weird relationship with major labels because we didn't really play their games. And um, we played a lot of stuff on imports. And, you know, we just they would get frustrated with us, especially as the overall format of quote unquote alternative radio moved to basically aggro rock. Um, and we just weren't, we weren't helping them on the charts. So I remember very clearly when our Warner local rep, uh, cause back in those days, I don't, I doubt that's still as much of a thing, but we used to have a regional Warner Brothers representative who covered like Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, whatever. And he came to the station with a giant boombox and played us Crystal for the first time at one of our music meetings. And uh, I mean, and we we just loved it so much. I mean, like that that is a track that we put on the air. And I mean, at that point in time, I have to imagine we're one of the few commercial radio stations in the country that you know put that shit into heavy rotation right away and wrote it for a very long time um but that was you know for us it was like a classic a classic band from our station's history putting out an, a great new record um so it was like such a such a perfect fit and i mean i'm looking at the track listing i mean we played one two three Four. We played at least five. So we we played half this record. We you know we played five of the ten tracks off this album, um, and I think that by and large it still uh, re- you know really holds up for me. Again, it's one of those albums that's kind of front loaded. I think the first half is stronger than the second half, um, but yeah, I mean I even love when you get into the deeper cuts. Like we we played. Uh, rock the shack because you know had bobby gillespie from primal scream on it and it was just one of those songs that sounded like our station you know i mean i just i i I really love this record annie what about you on get ready yeah i when i heard it at the time and i was i was writing about music at that point and i'm pretty sure i still somewhere have like a promo of that record so like well like the warner brothers like CDR or whatever that is. I'm going to have to go digging for that because I also loved it. Like I thought like what Shiv said about Crystal, Crystal is just a massive sig- or sig- single, you know? I mean, A, it, I love that it sounded different than everything going on at that time. It was kind of a breath of fresh air, but it was just like, it just kind of boomed out of the speakers. But I also was just like, wow, like I really, I had really liked, they had a song on the beach soundtrack um, called Brutal. And I think oh, it was yeah. actually a new song. Like I, and it was. I was, you know, at college, so I had high-speed internet, So, and I was a big Napster fan. So I, like, distinctly remember downloading Brutal and being like, all right, you know, I totally was into it. And so it really got me back on kind of the New Order train. And then this came out, and it was just like, oh, my God. Yeah, the, the Rock Rock the Shack with Bobby Gillespie is just a fantastic record, or single two, and 60 miles an hour. Like, it just... It was just everything, and it's funny, like, in hindsight, listening to this record, that it really predicted a lot of the stuff that was coming on in the rest of the decade. 
with all the post-punk coming back and, you know, LCD sound system. Mm -hmm. Like, it was actually a very forward-thinking album in, in hindsight. person Annie I would have, have imagined but the way that they set this record up was that even though there are like 3,000 compilations for New Order the first thing that they did for this record was create a promo only compilation called 20 Years of New Order and so they sent that out to radio and I imagine journalists and stuff and just was like you know laid down a refresher as if to say you know like this band you know, this is their history. This is important. This is why you need to pay attention to this record. Um, and I, I just remember we, you know, we did tons of promotions, like giving away those compilations. Um, and then I think the other thing for me at the time was, um, and they were always great at remixes, but, you know, this record came out and whoever was a and all the mixes, like they were getting all of like the hottest producers and remixers at that time um, to do to do the mixes. So you know you had you know like John Digweed and uh, stuff. You know people like that like doing doing the mixes of the singles, and they were they were huge um, on the dance club charts at that time as well. I remember that because I think I have it somewhere, I think I have like a CD that's like just the Crystal remixes. There were so many remixes of Crystal. And I think well, I those, rescued it from a dollar bin. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, those John Digweed mixes are like 10 plus minutes long. Oh, yeah. Like they're, just, totally. they're, they're just massive. Yeah. I guess that's an aspect of this band, which is separates them from some of the other, a lot of the other bands that we discuss is that the, the dance charts, we don't necessarily ever have discussions about that we're usually dealing with the modern rock charts and and the album charts and stuff and then also the number of the the way that the remix singles can impact the popularity of the band is is quite different um because they had you mentioned crystal there are 52 different versions of a crystal single that are listed on discogs (laughs) well you have to realize that even in that moment where CD singles were kind of on the way out at that point, but you still 
uh, that's one thing that Warner was always really good at and very cognizant of was artists who had just a big history and a very solid fan base. They made sure to release all of the things that were coming out internationally, or at least, you know, generally speaking, they would release them still as CD and 12-inch singles for the U.S. market. Now, I can't imagine that there were tons of copies pressed of some of that stuff, but they were still, they were they were doing commercial 12-inches for the singles off of that record um, because they knew that there were people who would collect them. And then there was, around this time... Oh, okay. It came from the the there was a single called "Here to Stay," which came from the twenty four hour party people soundtrack. It was in the, around oh, the same time as that song uh, is so good. Yeah, as as the Get Ready album. So I thought for a second it was on there, but it's it was not. No, that was from two thousand two. Uh, that track was done with the Chemical Brothers, and it's an absolute fucking banger. <laughs> that entire soundtrack, like unsurprisingly, was amazing. I love the movie anyway, but yeah, that soundtrack, totally fucking awesome. Annie, good to know that 24-Hour Party People is getting its first U.S. Blu-ray release coming up here soon. Is it really? I did not yes. know that. That is excellent news, actually. So this is the point in the show. Now that we have run the decade, we've hit the album before, the album after, everything in between. Well, we have to decide whether the band survived the 90s and in this case maybe not being a band helped them survive the 90s now in you know full disclosure this is the last record get ready is the last record with the original lineup of the band um yes jillian would leave after this record uh phil cunningham is that his name comes in as a uh, member of the band he was on get ready but then he becomes a full-time member on um waiting for the sirens call and then that's waiting for the sirens call is the last album with peter hook who leaves the band and then there's a lawsuit between peter hook and new order i think with regards to royalties and it's just a a big ugly mess it turns into like an 80s metal band at that point where there are people are suing each other and you've got docking going on or something like that so what we need to figure out is did this band survive the 90s or did the 90s consume them jay you've i feel like you have a strong opinion about this (laughs) well uh i think when we talk about this with other bands we're talking about like the business the trends the culture the culture change like most of the bands we've covered that has had a significant impact on them right um i don't i i don't know as much about the band as you guys do but i don't get the sense that like the trends of the 90s had anything to do with their dysfunction and i think 2005 they put out a really good record um so that's you know five years after the decade ends they're still making good music i don't know that anything that ended up happening with the band of why they're not together now had anything to do with you know thing the 90s in general as with some other bands that we've talked about right exactly so i mean i certainly think it's unfortunate that they've had the falling apart that they've had because i mean i always think it's weird i mean i don't know about i i I live in my little austin texas bubble i mean peter hook plays here 
all the goddamn time. And he comes here and plays New Order songs. Like, I think it's weird. But, you know, in terms of did they survive the 90s, I mean, I think that they get, get Ready sort of proves how they did survive and took everything, all of the sort of splintering off that happened, I think helped really inform what they were going to become and how Get Ready was really shaped. Um, and I think it's successful. I really do. Annie, what about you? I would agree with that. And, you know, I think what's interesting is that they were sort of ahead of the curve on the whole, like, the best career move you can do is break up because then everyone <laughs> yeah. is so excited when you're back because That's right. yeah i mean it was you know they got back together in 98 and it was kind of a slow build back up i mean i remember like you know a ton of goodwill in in the first half of the 2000s with them and so i think you know that's definitely something that you can't really overlook i think you know and it's funny because peter hook has not played in cleveland and i'm very upset about that because you're right, he's been touring all the time. I interviewed him. He's in a great place right now, but like has not come to Cleveland. And I think he would do pretty well in Cleveland, but I digress. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but New Order played here. And I was kind of like last year and I'm like, I honestly didn't feel compelled to go. I was, I was just like, eh, you know, like and I've never seen them. And I just I, I do think it, it is unfortunate how the kind of the schism happened. But I think from just reading Peter's book, it sounds like there was just there's just even when the 90s was they were apart and even went back together there's just so much dysfunction in the band that it just seemed like it was sort of inevitable and it's sad i mean it you know it, it's it's different personalities um but i you know i think but I, I do think they came out of the 90s you know on a high note which was which is better than i think a lot of bands can say and they kind of they survived actually the 90s and you know in a way that a lot of sort of you know 80s alternative acts didn't all right there we have it. New Order survived the 90s. This was an interesting run. We've never had a band that had such a wild decade in terms of splitting up and doing so many different things and ultimately coming back together and making strong records. Um, you know, we've done Van Halen, Metallica, Duran Duran, Tom Petty, uh, just off the top of my head. Those are the in the '90s that we've done. Jamie, forgetting any other ones that we've done for in the '90s? I think that's it. I think that's it. And uh, they all had their all you know in- individual issues with regards to what happened in the '90s, and some survived, some didn't. And uh, this is an interesting one. So we need to thank our patrons first of all for suggesting this. This was a an, a cool episode to do. Spend some time with New Order, and we also need to thank our guests. For joining us, it took a little bit to get it all together, but we made it happen. It's a fun episode. Thank you, Annie, for coming on. What do you got going on? Oh Lord, um, uh, the, the ten thousand dollar question. That's a really good point. Question. Uh, I have an, e- an interview with Ian Hunter. I did that is probably going to go up this week. Cool. Very cool. And Shiv. What's up with you? Anything you well, want to share? You know, uh, well, you know, I just survived South by Southwest, right? Uh, which was always a great time. And then, 
you know, I think, as you may know at this point, I don't do as much music uh, stuff anymore. I am pretty embedded in the film world here in Austin. Um, I do have a weekly column in the Austin American Statesman every Wednesday uh, that uh, tips you off to what's new on VOD and streaming services like Netflix. So um, you can find that online at statesman.com and then I'm just always, you know, kind of running around here in town uh, watching live music and seeing a lot of movies. Excellent. Thank you both for joining us this was a lot of fun um i want to remind everybody patreon.com forward slash dig me out is where you go to join the conversation you can vote in our polls get merch and all that kind of stuff and then if you like what you heard please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at itunes so for jam tim we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out thanks for listening to support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. I look, it's clear to me.